If you have your Bibles, you can get ready, uh, turn to Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Many years ago, I read a little booklet when I was in college. It was called Tyranny of the Urgent. And that little booklet started out with this question, and I've never forgotten it. And it started out with this question. How could Jesus Christ, after only a three-and-a-half-year ministry, and there was still the maimed and the blind and the lost all around him, come to the cross of Calvary and say to his heavenly Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. And the reason for that was because Jesus Christ gave himself to what was important rather than to what was urgent. And most of you know from the introduction to the seminar that in spite of the fact that God very clearly brought Carol and me together and we loved each other very dearly, we had one goal and that was to live for the Lord and to serve the Lord, that after five years of marriage, I came to the conclusion that I married the wrong one. I did not love her. I had no feelings for her. And I really believed that, uh, as I tried to analyze this thoroughly, that Carol was the problem. And if Carol would just change, then that would solve all of our problems. But at the heart of this, when I took a long look at my life, the things that I minimized or that I thought were really minor problems were these things. One is that I had a critical spirit. Two, I was a rebellious person, but I didn't know it. And the reason I never knew it is because my attitude was not one of rebellion. The way I manifested my independence was by manipulation. If somebody told me to do something and I didn't want to do it, why well, I would find a way, a nice way, to get around to doing this. And the first year that I was a youth director, and that was my um, third year of marriage, it baffled me that a teenager who was graduating brought me a present, and the present was a little fat man on a spring. And the thing just kind of moved around and wiggled like that, and the little fat man had his arms folded and a cork in his ear, and the caption under it was, convince me, I'm open-minded, and the girl said, you know, when I saw that, this reminded me of you. And so my wife used to say, it doesn't really matter what you say to Larry, he's going to do what he wants to do anyway. But I never came off with the rebellious attitude, I came off with the manipulative attitude. Not only was that a problem, but I had a temper. Well, not a bad temper, one that just did a slow burn and then I just kind of let it all out. Plus, I had resentments that I traced back to six years old when my dad died, and I became bitter to God. And of course, bitterness in our lives make us negative, and even though we try to be positive, we end up being positively negative. Getting married doesn't solve the problems in your thought life. As a matter of fact, if that was the case, we wouldn't have so much infidelity, would we? And we've already talked about the principle of God wanting you and me 
to put a guard on our heart and our lives and our families and our home as to what we allow to come into that heart and life. And what do we say one of the keys was to not giving Satan that time and attention? He said his music, didn't we? When temptation, when lust, when the problems that involve the mind and the emotions like discouragement and fear and anxiety and depression and temptation, all of those things involve the mind and the emotions and just knowing the answer or knowing the insight to God's word won't give us the handle to solve the problem. And then I was still living with guilt. There were certain things that even though I asked God to forgive me, I didn't feel forgiven. There were other things I asked him to forgive me, and I felt forgiven. They didn't bother me. They didn't come back to my mind. I was free. But there were some things that kept creeping back into my life, and we talked about how to develop that transparency, how to deal with that guilt. And when I began to take care of those things on the inside, then guess what happened? I started to be open. I started to be transparent. I wasn't threatened if somebody knew that I had made a mistake. Doesn't the scripture say, confess your faults one to another? And of course, if you or I are living with guilt, the dominant attitude that we portray is one of a judgmental, condemning attitude. Who art thou that condemnest another? For thou doest those things. Now, on top of all of those attitudes, and you just tell me how two people who love the Lord can make it work if you've got a husband with those kind of attitudes who really is seeking to follow Christ, and you have a wife who in her own way has violated some of those basic principles of Scripture, and so her attitude is manifested in another way, and tomorrow night... Uh, I trust that you'll all come back because we're going to talk about that subject that all you men have been praying for. That's the woman's role in submission. Now, most of you women won't want to come tomorrow night because you feel you've been browbeaten and you've heard it. And uh, I'm going to say some things you haven't heard before. And then, ladies, stick around because then I'm going to talk about that subject that all you ladies have been praying for, and that's the husband's role in communicating with his wife. I didn't have the vaguest idea when I got married that communication was one of the basic needs of a woman. I did not know that. I accidentally talked to Carol before I married her. And I gave her all that undivided attention because when a man wants something, he gives it his undivided attention. After I got her, I thought, now, I want her to be proud of me and I'm not going to be some lazy bum that doesn't provide for his family, and I'm going to get out there and work, and I loved my work. I loved it so much that I finally one day calculated, in one week I just spent 107 hours at the church. And I loved it. And my only regret was that I had to sleep. And when I would come home, my wife would try to talk to me, and how do women try to talk to their husbands? The first thing they do is, is that they throw out an incidental question that probably doesn't mean anything. It isn't even important, 
Now, she's asking that question to try to figure out if this is the time to talk to him about what she really wants to talk about. And if she asks this incidental question and he's not paying attention, then she usually says to herself, well, now's not a good time. I'll wait till a little later. Then, of course, after supper, he's drowsy, and so that's not a good time. And then a little later into the evening, that's not a good time. And there never seems to be a good time, and so she finally decides there's only one last chance. When's that? Right before he goes to sleep. My head's already on the pillow. Honey, I need to talk to you. What do you need to talk about? Now, usually, if you ask your wife that, and she realizes you don't even know, that upsets her. And so my wife would cry. And, uh, I mean, it used to bug me, because as she was talking, I'd fall asleep. Now, you know, when you, I don't know about all you women in New York, but uh, down where I come from, when your wife is upset, she sleeps with her back to you, okay? If she's miffed before you go to bed, she jumps in bed with her back to you so you got the message up front. But when I would fall asleep while my wife was talking, she never turned over and turned her back to me. She just sort of leaned on over and then she's crying in my ear while I'm trying to sleep. Just a quiet cry. And you wake up and you're forced to talk and then I would get up on my elbow and then my shoulder would fall asleep. And then as months or weeks would go on, I'd sit up in bed, turn the light on, give her my undivided attention, surrender, I agree, I understand what you're saying, honey. And that worked for a while and then she finally started catching on that I really wasn't listening. Because after I acted so understanding, then she'd say, well now do you understand what I mean? I'd say, honey, I really understand what you mean. Well, explain it to me. And then I would start guessing. I'd try to put this empathetic conversation together and pull a couple of key words that she used to explain what she meant. And then she realized I really wasn't listening and that upset her again. And so then you go to another level of attention. And by the way, all of this does not knit our lives or our hearts together. It alienates us. And so, I like to define a priority, and I might add this, God never got my attention about how serious our problems were until my, my only child at the time, my four-year-old, was rebellious about going to church. And one Sunday morning, I'm getting ready to go to church, and I said, come on, Sharon, let's go to church. And just, I mean, venom came out of her attitude, and she said, I hate Sunday school. And I looked down at that little baby, and I could not believe it. Everything that I didn't want to happen was happening to me. I knew the marriage wasn't so hot. And I didn't know where to begin, and God showed me where to begin in two areas. Number one, I needed to find out what the problem was in my personal life that kept generating these attitudes of mine, and second, I could not define for you what was important to God. There were so many demands on my life, and I loved it. 
I really thought that in the ministry, if you really want to meet the needs of people, then you need to be available whenever they need you. And I discovered that when they know that you're available anytime, they call you anytime. They call you at 2 in the morning. They call you at 3 in the morning. They call you at 4 in the morning. You've got a whole day scheduled the next day. You have to assume that was a mistake to schedule all those people because you're out there in the middle of the night talking to someone. You can't stay awake the next day. Now, I like to define a priority as acting on a matter because of God's claim on my life, which takes precedence over all other human urgencies. It's essential that you and I can define in our mind what is important to God, and I said if I could figure out what was important to him, then I would commit myself to that, and once I had committed myself to that, if there was not time for other things, I would have the courage to let them go. And in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul addresses this subject. It was Moses back in Psalm 90 who said, Lord, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Now the Hebrew word there for wisdom means to be skillful. It means to be able to reach the desired goal by the right means. I find that most Christians can all define what our ultimate goal ought to be. I want to live for Christ. I want Christ to live through my life. We want to have a successful marriage. We want to have a successful family. We can define our goals for our church and how we want to reach out into this New York community and we want to reach out into the uttermost parts of the world and we can define these goals but very few Christians, very few marriages, very few families, very few churches ever get there. And when you go back and evaluate why that happens in many instances, we will find that in looking back in retrospect, somehow, some way, I was impressed that the pressures that were put on me were more important than what I know in my heart God wants me to give myself to. And when I was able to define God's priorities, one, I was scared about it because I was really worried about what everybody would think. When I started saying no to things that were expected of me, when I asked the question, is it really possible, can you, can you honestly get through these really tough years of raising a family? And can I look back when I get out there and not have this statement on my breath that I really wish that I had spent more time with my wife or I wish I had spent more time with my children? Is there any way to do that? And I want to tell you tonight there is. I have a 26-year-old daughter. I've got two children, a daughter and a son at Liberty University. I've got a girl who's an 11th grader. And I'll tell you what, the kids are almost through those critical years 
All four of them love the Lord. Carol and I set out one goal, and that is that my goal is to be a lifetime boyfriend to my son and my daughters. And my wife's goal was to be a lifetime girlfriend to her son and her daughters. And I can say this very honestly, that we are some of their best friends and they are some of our best friends. And it isn't that they don't have many other friends. In fact, uh, my daughter is right now up in Boston spending a couple weeks with uh, uh, the one she thinks may be the one. And he already came down and visited us, and their life is going on. And you know what? Uh, when those girls of mine marry, I can't wait to be a lifetime friend of those guys. When my son marries, we can't wait to be a lifetime friend of that gal. But we have to be able to define from God's point of view what is important to God because if we don't, Satan will in fact bring many, 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 many important things into our lives that we feel we have to do because of the urgency of the, of the moment. And I'm here to tell you that if you will give yourself first to what is important to God, it cuts down the time you have to do for some of those other things. And number one, it gives you a confidence to learn how to say to people, I really wish I could do that with you, but I can't. Why are we afraid to tell people no? We're afraid that we'll hurt their feelings. We're afraid how they will react. Well, if you say no, I won't, or well, okay, or, or you start saying, well, sure, I'll do it, and then you know you're not going to do it, and so you're, you know, you're going to have an emergency next Tuesday, so you're going to call and say you can't do it. So now we can't be counted on? Do that with your kids. Do that with your wife. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul addresses this subject when he says, beginning in verse 15, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. There's that same word for wise in the New Testament redeeming the time because the days are evil. In other words, make your time count. Be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So Paul's making it very clear that in his mind, he has some very specific things he wants us to understand, and you have to go all the way over to chapter 6, verse 10, where he says, and finally, brethren. So now here's the conclusion of this. And finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then he tells us how we have a responsibility to reach out to this world. Now notice in chapter 5 and verse 18, the first thing the Apostle Paul says is to be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The very first thing the Apostle Paul says is you give the necessary time and attention to your spiritual well-being and your personal spiritual development. 
That is a priority. Now, by the way, I do not believe the Apostle Paul is listing these things in an order of priority, but rather he is saying that these five things that he's going to talk about are corporately a priority in our lives, and if we neglect one or if we get so involved at one at the expense of another, there is going to develop in our life or our marriage or our family or our service to God a deficiency in our life. I know healthy, generally speaking, solid people who are relatively free from some of the problems that others may have. They may have, as I would call them, been so educated. We have so many tools. We have so many books on every subject today. And they have really been gathering and studying, and yet they struggle with an incredible boredom in their life. Or they struggle with a depression all the time. And I ask them, in what way are you personally involved in the lives of other people? In what way? You just neglect that one area of your life. It is the tragedy of older Christians today who have washed out in the middle years of their lives and have said, let the young people do it. We've put in our time. And so they spiritually retire. They take that aspect out of their life. Now notice the next thing the Apostle Paul talks about. Then he talks about our marriage relationships, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as unto the Lord. And he goes on here and talks about that relationship. Then he says, and husbands, love your wives. And the second area the Apostle Paul addresses is our marriage. The next thing he addresses is our family, our children. He says, children, obey your parents. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, but raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the next thing he talks about is our family. Then he talks about our place of employment. You servants, you employees, and those of you who are Christians, who are employers and have people under you. He talks about our responsibility to them. And then he says, and finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God. So Paul says that our personal life and our marriage, if you're married, if you're not married, you don't have children, then God wants you, if you sense his calling in your life to be married, that while he's not, that man's not available, while that gal's not available, you commit yourselves to building those character, those qualities of Christ in your personal life. And if God feels you can't afford not to be married, he won't have any trouble introducing the gal to you or the guy to you. And I'll tell you what, that, that's, a, that's a great challenge to young people today. I have a 26-year-old daughter, and she doesn't have a boyfriend, and she's a lovely gal and loves the Lord, and, and uh, we seem to have a lot in our school there of, of single guys and gals who have some real desires on the one side, and at the other side they, 
are totally submissive to Christ and said, Lord, if you're calling me to singleness, I'm willing to be single and I am willing to be contentedly single. And I believe many of these young men and women would be willing to do that. But that's not the norm. And in the meantime, if in fact that isn't God's calling on your life right now, marriage and a family, then you are free to give yourself more fully to serving Christ and to being responsible on the job and in that vocation. Now before we get into this in a practical way, turn with me over to Colossians, the third chapter. Because I believe that the Apostle Paul in these two books gives the same outline. Only I want you to take a little peek over in chapter 4 before we back up to verse 12 of chapter 3 because he goes through the same sequence from chapter 3 verse 12 he goes all the way through the personal life the marriage the family the employment and then our responsibility to the world but notice how he ends this passage of scripture whereas in Ephesians he said redeeming the time because the days are evil and I want you to understand what the will of the Lord is. Now notice how he ends this. Verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. He kind of boxes this in. Redeem the time and then now let me explain the priorities and then in Colossians chapter 3, back up now to verse 12, where he amplifies what he means in Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 and 20. Those three verses are, are like a little summary when it says, be filled with the Spirit. Now notice what he says here. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body. And be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, and whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And then he goes, wives, submit yourselves. Husbands, love your wives. And he gives a little summary here in Colossians where he amplifies what he has in mind back in Ephesians. And then children, obey your parents, and fathers, provoke not your children. And then servants, and then chapter 4, verse 1, you masters, those of you are, that are out there in the marketplace working, our responsibility to be stewards of our time and of our earning power. And then what? All of this, it's got to start here with me personally, then it's got to move out. And when I said, you mean to tell me that if I would start setting aside time 
for my wife and my kids. Right, not just one child then. That I wouldn't be in trouble with God. That's how I thought. The only thing that freed me and gave me the confidence that I could do this was 1 Timothy 3.5 that said, How can a man rule the house of God if he rules not his own home well? Now, what's he saying there? What's he saying? What that said to me is that I've got to quit blaming God for keeping me so busy I don't have time for Carol. I've got to quit blaming God for being so busy I don't have time for the kids. I didn't have time for one child. I didn't know it would be ultimately before. And by the way, if you've set aside just a little bit of time, you have one, you eventually have ten. You can't divide the one hour now by ten. If you're going to take on that responsibility of other lives, then God is going to expect you to invest more of your time in those lives. I felt so guilty that the only way I could justify spending legitimate time with my wife and my child was to write them in my book as an appointment. But I'll tell you what, when Sharon was four years old and I said, you know what, on Mondays, Dad is staying home and we're going to play together. And I'll tell you, that little gal, the change that took place over a six-month period. Now, by the way, guess who had the biggest struggle? I mean, I just had... I said, honey, I really want to learn to listen to what my daughter says. I really want to be able to give my children my undivided attention. Do you know how long, what an attention span I had? In my longest concentration was about 30 seconds. And she'd go on talking and Carol would say, honey, I didn't hear her for four or five times. Honey, you know, Sharon's talking to you, huh? It took me six months that when I would come in the house and if my wife spoke to me or if my daughter spoke to me that they had my undivided attention. Now that's not to say that it stayed that way all the time. But I think my wife, I know my wife would tell you that I'm pretty good at it. I have to keep working at it when you get two kids and three kids that all want to talk at the same time you start trying to listen to them and you have four you need to give them that individual attention. Now, that appointment stuff didn't last very long. I began to realize, you know what? You know, it isn't a time of the week that they need. It's when I'm home, when they're talking. Give them your undivided attention. It still blows my mind that the only person in the world that I would ever talk to or I would ever close my eyes to while they were talking is my wife. I would not do that to another human being in the world. It's rude. It's rude. My wife would start talking, and I didn't like what she's talking about, or I wasn't interested, and the first thing I'd do is close my eyes. And then she's trying, are, are you still listening? Mm -hmm. Now, 
Let's talk about this from a practical standpoint. <clears throat> Page 12 here, some steps or guidelines to correct this. In your syllabus, and if you don't have a syllabus, I would encourage, we'll, we'll get some copies made or something because there's a couple of pages in there to help you work out a schedule. Now, I didn't have this in printed form when I started working on this. I just kind of worked my way trial and error through this, and I did know there were 168 hours in a week. But what I did is I tried to write out all of the things that I was doing every week, and I put down about how many hours I thought I was spending, and I added them up, and it totaled 182 hours, which meant what? I wasn't doing what I thought I was doing. I sure wasn't taking as much time as I thought. And by the way, when we do not understand priorities, I believe that the norm of the Christian life is a combination of frustration and boredom. Because we may end up using but a very few of our abilities and our potential. Some of you are working in a job that the basic purpose of the job is income. The job itself may not be what you feel is really the ultimate fulfillment of your life. Now, there is some fulfillment in that job, but it all may not be there. And yet you may be feeling that that job is taking up the major part of your time, and there's so many other things I want to do, but I have so little time to do it. And so I have that frustration that I can't get all the things that I want done, and because so much of my time is spent in the things that aren't important to me, I get bored with life. And the meaningful things in my life seem like they are flickering experiences that happen from time to time that is like a, a ray of hope that keeps me going. There is more out there. And I want you to know that when you have the confidence to give yourself to what is important to God, your days take on new significance because, for one thing, you begin to control what you do with your time. Other people don't start controlling your time. You know where my greatest struggle was? My greatest struggle was other Christians, especially my buddies, we used to get up at daybreak in the summer and go golf nine holes. So they could all, then they'd go to work, you know, about 8 o'clock, and we'd, we'd have it all in. The first time I told Sharon that I was going to spend an evening with her, and I, you know, I used to build these things up, and you can get kids excited, and it's going to be a fun night, and I do all this. I've always loved kids all my life, and I had got her all motivated, and one of the guys come over to the church, and said, Larry, you will not believe this. I mean, these things are a premium, but I've got two tickets to the Stanley Cup tonight. And I'm living in Detroit, and I look at him, and now I'll tell you what my mind was going. Let's see, is there some way I can change this thing tonight, and then I'll do something with Sharon the next night? Except I had another verse running through my, two verses running through my mind in Psalm 15, 
A stable man is he that swears to his own hurt and changes not. And Jesus said, let your yeas be yeas and your nays be nays. And any alternative to this comes from the wicked one. So I tried to tell them that I couldn't without telling them why. Well, I can't do it. Man, I would love to go, guys. So what do you... I mean, what do you have so important? I mean, this is the Stanley Cup, Coy. I said, I know, but I'm, I'm already, already tired. What, what are you doing? I mean, what is so more? And I finally, in embarrassment, had to say, I'm going to be playing dolls with Sharon tonight. Now, would I rather have played with dolls or gone to the Stanley Cup? I would have rather gone to the Stanley Cup those dolls wet on you, they spit up on you. I mean, they attack you. And I started giving Carol the legitimate time she needed. And I went to her to find out what the legitimate time is. Now guys, if you haven't been doing this, you're gonna have to get ready for a little extra time because this is like a dying man on a desert for three days without water. I mean, you haven't talked for five years and now you're opening yourself up and she wants to catch up. And when we first started getting into this, it irritated me that she wanted to talk so much. I mean, when your wife is sitting in the bed and she's saying, you know, I just cannot believe we're doing this. I never, ever thought that we would be able to do this. And she said, I've got three things I really want to talk about tonight. You know, and I started out really good. Good attitude, good motive at 10 o'clock. But at 12.30, she's still on point one. <laughs> and I'm getting irritated. And I'm saying to myself, no, this really is important. This is really important. Now, the first thing you need to do is to assess how you're spending your time right now. You need to figure that out. Take one of the schedules, start out with 168 hours, and then just, uh, you can fill in the blanks, the time you sleep. All of those times, uh, just fill in your whole daily schedule, what you do every day and every evening. Just fill it up. Don't worry about whether it's right or wrong, just fill it up. That'll kind of give you an idea of what you do. Now, come back and start another schedule based on God's priorities. Now, some of you are like me, and that is that you're not really a, a detailed person. So writing out all these little schedules and all these little details for some of us is very frustrating. For others, they're saying, praise the Lord, this is unbelievable. I mean, I know a, an airline pilot that he records, he's now a pastor out in the Chicago area, he records what he does with every minute of every day and goes back and evaluates the next day how he wasted any of his time. I have never done that. But even if you're not a detailed person, you need to do this for at least three or four weeks till you can get a feel for having the confidence of not letting secondary things come in and pressure you 
to override those priorities that God has placed in your life. So the first thing you need to do is, with the second schedule is to block out the time you sleep, then fill in the times in your present schedule over which you have very little control. Uh, even when I began this, it took me almost six months just to kind of wind out other commitments that I had and so forth. But you know what? My wife didn't care. There was an end to this. There was light at the end of the tunnel. Now, every time I hear that phrase, somebody said to me once, yes, that's the locomotive. Once you get that time filled in, now you ladies that are not out in the workforce earning money who are home you fill in the times or those of you who are students <clears throat> so many hours a week at school including travel and so many hours of study and fill those times in you gals that are home if you gals are out in the workforce then you your work schedule is pretty much committed you gals at home uh, I realize that a woman's work is never done, but there are times during the week where you have very little control over your schedule. The kids have to get ready for school. That's a committed time. If it's preparation for a meal, certain days out of the week you do the wash. If you have six kids, you do it every day. If you have three in high school like we had and they're all in sports, you do it every day. It's, oh, mom, you know, at 1 o'clock in the morning, I forgot I need my gym clothes for tomorrow. Put down those times which you don't, that are pretty standard and you can't control that too much. Hopefully you have some convictions about your responsibility to church and you come to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night or whatever your priorities are, whatever your convictions are, put those in, allow the traveling time, that'll be about 10 hours if you come to three services a week. Now, once you get those things set in place and you look at your schedule, and every one of your schedules will be different, you will see where the blank times are in your schedule. You may have Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, all day Saturday and Sunday afternoon and Sunday night after church. Those all may be blank right now. Now, they weren't before. They weren't last week. All those times were committed doing something. But right now, the whole thing is blank. Now, let's come back to God's priorities. Number one in that priority is what? My personal relationship with him. You find a time in your day where you can get alone with the Lord and give him his undivided attention, your undivided attention. Now, God doesn't want us to legalize this. Remember when we talked about getting into his word, that principle? How often does God really want to fellowship with us during the day? Does anybody remember? Huh? When? Not all the time. That's close, huh? Huh? When we lie down, when we rise up, when we go from place to place, when we sit in our house, is that all the time? We kind of disproved that, didn't we? When is that? Our spare thought time. 
If you want to know how many times to fellowship with God in a day, that is determined by how much of my day is my mind is free. There are other days where we are so busy and so preoccupied with what we're doing that there is hardly a moment for you and I to fellowship with him. Those are the days, if you recall, I said I usually come home and hit the sack dead. I whip out a little bit of Psalm 4, my voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, I'm gone. I have days like that, you have days like that. But when God says that personal fellowship with, with him is so essential, man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. You come back to Colossians and you ask yourself, do I have a heart of forgiveness? Is that a problem for me? Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, you forgive him. Let the word of Christ dwell on you richly. Just those specific areas need addressed in my life. Not all of them in the same day, but they, they sort of come full circle. I, I get a handle in some of those areas, and those are going pretty good, and then here comes a different experience in my life. And I need that fellowship and that relationship with God. Now, when I started out, I used to read about how all these giants of the faith used to get up. I mean, four in the morning, five in the morning. Now, I completely forgot that they didn't have electricity back in those days. So these people went to bed about 8 o'clock and got up at 4, and they lived by the daylight. But I thought that if you really want to be spiritual, you've got to get up early. Well, I'm, I go to bed late. I hardly ever go to bed before 1, 1 2 o'clock. Fortunately, I married a gal who's on the same track. In fact, sometimes she follows me to bed afterwards. So I'd go to bed late, and I'd get up. Five, that alarm would go off at five. I'd get on my knees and start to pray. I mean, we're 30 seconds into Dear Heavenly Father, and I am gone. I mean, I am laying there. The thing that wakes me up is my knees start to hurt. A God had to be up in heaven looking down and saying, no, that is really a ridiculous position for Larry to sleep. I mean, why doesn't the guy get up in the bed and lay down? And finally, I realized, when am I wide awake? When is my adrenaline flowing? When can I give God my undivided attention? When does the phone quit ringing? When have Carol and I had our time together with each other? You know when that priority time for me is? It's late at night after everything else has stopped. Now, moms, you know, don't set 5 o'clock every evening to be with the Lord. It's supper time. You know, I remember to this day, on the few occasions when I get up at 5.30 as a teenager, that was always to go to the bathroom and go back to bed. My mom and my dad were downstairs at the table reading their Bibles. My dad left for work at 6.30. They were down there in the Word together having their own quiet time. Find that time in your life where God gets your undivided attention. And of course, that leads us to another thing, which I'm not going to address here, and you need to talk to your pastor if 
if uh, you're saying, but I really don't know what to do with that time. I'm next, in two weeks from now, I'm going to start a series with my Sunday school class because I said, you know, I like to have six, seven, eight different ways to study the Word going. Because I get bored or tired of one routine way. I have a short attention span, and so once I start tiring of that, where I spend a lot of time in Proverbs, then I may move over into a biography, start studying biographies, or then I go and I want to exegete a passage, or then I want to take a subject and begin to get into that. But if you don't have four or five ways, or don't have some practical, simple tools, two or three books that could help you along, then talk to your pastor. Say, I really want to give the Lord my undivided attention, and so, but I really don't know how to get into it. Well, then talk to them. Find out what you can do personally. The second thing, if you're married, set aside time for your mate. Now, we started this when we had one child and she was young, wasn't even in school. The best time for Carol and me to spend was after Sharon was in bed. That's when we started. It was Monday and Tuesday and Thursday nights. That's all that was free at that point in my schedule. Sharon goes to bed. We talk till we're done talking. You know what happened when Carol and I had a time where we could talk openly with what was on her mind, what was on my mind, start making decisions together? You know one of the first things that stopped? Guess what? She quit talking to me right before I fell asleep. Why? Because she didn't have to fight for my attention. And then the kids. As the children grew up, and by the way, the needs or the demands of those kids change. As they get older, they get to be teenagers. I found myself doing more and more major projects or riding together in the car, going to all their ball games that they played in, going and getting involved. We just committed ourselves to being involved with our children as they grew all the way up through school. So I coach football. I've coached girls softball for the last seven years. We just finished our season. Karen, she's a junior in high school and she plays, and I've stayed involved at that. She had a great season. She batted 488. Our team was 20 and 4. And um, we, just, we just enjoy ourselves tremendously. I remember one year the parents, their, their kids were in the, the public school, and they were complaining about the elementary school and how terrible it was. And... I got 22 couples out of my Sunday school class to start getting involved where their kids were, and 18 of those couples went over and joined the PTA at that elementary school, and guess what? They just changed that whole thing around. They no longer were fearful about where those, their kids were. They were involved, and they became a dominant factor in what was going to happen, what was going to influence their children. I made it a point on a rotation basis to do something alone with each of my children. Now, sometimes I could do something with all of them in one day. Sometimes I could get them all, all four of them in in one week. Sometimes it took me a month 
just to do something special. But every one of those kids knew when their time was coming next. Because I've traveled a lot all my life. Four of the years my children were growing up, I traveled 150,000 miles each year. Most of the time it was between 75,000 and 100,000 miles. And you know, in all of that time, and my wife would tell you this, my mother finally told me that, because when I came back home from a trip, the only thing I was involved in was my kids. It was my family. So we would do something alone. I would do something alone with the children on a rotating basis. We did something as a family once a week. We had a family night on Friday night. And then we honored a different member of the family, including mom and dad. It was our turn. Everybody had to write something nice about the brother or the sister we're honoring. And boy, as you watch your kids go through the different phases, especially when you get there to 9 and 10 and 11, uh, that brother would rather eat nails and three rats than to write something nice about his sisters. I mean, David's notes, the paper even got smaller, where it got down into a little piece of paper like that. And they all had bulletin boards, and the one we were honoring got to pick what we're having for supper. They got to pick the games we we're going to play, the dessert. It was their night. Now, you have to be ready for some surprises. I remember when Karen was four, and it was her night, and so, okay, honey, what do you want for supper? And she wanted popcorn and Kool-Aid. <laughs> and I said, no, no, honey. I said, that's the dessert. What do you want for supper? And she said, all I want is popcorn and Kool-Aid. And I tried to change her mind, and then the next thing you know, the kid's dad, it's her choice. If that's what she wants for supper, that's all we're having. And we sat there eating popcorn and Kool-Aid. And after they went to bed, I ate. <laughs> and to show you how God blesses these times, <laughs> one time I told my second daughter, Cheryl, she must have been about nine, and I said, Cheryl, I've got three hours tomorrow afternoon because I always let them tell me what they wanted to do and then what they wanted to do dictated how long it was going to take. They wanted to do something that took a whole day. Then when I came up with a whole day free, that's what we'd do. On one occasion, it was David's day, and the only thing my son wanted me to do was to ride my bike and his bike over to the grocery store and back. That's all he wanted. I said, Dave, we got the whole day if you want it. He says, no, that's all I want you to do, Dad. So we turned it into about a two-mile ride, went to the grocery store and rode back. And you know what? That's all the time that he needed with me. That's all the time he needed. Cheryl, on that one day, she says, Dad, what I want to do is I want to go fishing tomorrow. And I said, honey, I said, look, you can't go fishing three hours because where we were going to go, it was about a 45-minute drive. I said, honey, we would just get out there. Furthermore, we're talking about from 3 to 5 or 3 to 6. And I said, um, we'll just get started, and we'll have to pack it all up and drive. I don't care, Dad. That's what I want to do. So we get out there to this lake. It's a rowboat. My daughter, Cheryl, caught 26 bass in one hour. I mean, the first 30 minutes, I'm serious. 
I'm taking another one off, another, and I finally, 30 minutes into the thing, I got a lure, I threw it into a weed patch, a bass came up out of that thing, I was so close to it, I threw it, that thing came up that I jerked and lost it. And I'm paddling back down the lake. Cheryl says, come on, Dad, I want to go back and get that one you missed. I said, honey, look, I've fished all my life, and you aren't going to go and catch that one. He's scared off. He's long gone. Come on, Dad, it's my day. So I paddle back up the weeds. She throws that thing. She pulls in a two-and-a-half-pounder. Down Virginia. Had five keepers. And I'll tell you what, God blessed that time. That was such a want. We still talk about it. She's 21. God blesses those special times. If we'll just give that to him, and do you know, if these are the things that are important to God, then you and I need to have the confidence to recognize that anything that is putting pressure on us to not give our attention, our I call it legitimate attention. Your kids will take all your attention. But to give that legitimate attention that they need. And God will honor that. Protect it. 